0: Hi everyone, and welcome to another episode of Flourish FM. In this episode, Nick and I talk to Dr. Robert Iswas-Dina. He's widely known as the Indiana Jones of positive psychology because his research has taken him to such far-flung places as Greenland, India, Kenya, and Israel. He's a leading authority on strengths, culture, courage, and happiness, and is known for his pioneering work in the application of positive psychology to coaching. He's authored more than 60 peer-reviewed articles and chapters, two of which are known as citation classics. They've each been cited more than a thousand times. And he's written seven books, including the 2007 Prose Award winner The Courage Quotient, book Happiness, and the New York Times bestseller The Upside of The Dark Side, with Todd Cashton, who was one of our first guests on the show. And his most recent book is Positive Provocation, 25 Questions to Elevate Your Coaching Practice, which we discuss in the show. Nick, what did you love most about this conversation?
1: I think there were two things, you know, early on, he made it pretty clear. I love that he wasn't overly academic and that he's saying, I'm not too worried about language when people are just trying to increase quality of life, right, whether we call it flourishing or happiness or optimal happiness or whatever it might be. I thought that was a breath of fresh air but he also then went deeper and teased out a really important term that i think continued our conversation with todd from early on in the series which was around psychological richness so i really enjoyed digging into that with him teasing out some of the nuances there what it kind of means practically for people and and i think our
0: audience will really
1: benefit from it
0: so anything you'd add in I loved everything you said. I also loved the conversation about optimal happiness. So Robert is an expert in optimal happiness and it's not clear what exactly that means. And towards the end of our conversation, we try and figure out what it means to be optimally happy. And that's, as we learn, is not to be as happy as humanly possible, but rather to kind of find the right balance between you know, being very happy in your life, but also being, having a rich you know, array of negative emotional experiences too, which contributes towards this notion of psychological, Richness. All right. We hope you enjoy this conversation with Robert Biswas Dina. All right, Robert, welcome to Flourish FM.
2: Thank you so much for having me. Glad to be here.
1: Yeah, pleasure to have you here. So, we thought we'd start by just kind of outlining some basic terms. You know, you'd feel free to kind of weave in some of your background throughout this if if you feel it, you know, helpful to contextualize some of this. But, you know, obviously the name of the show is Flourish FM. We want to talk a little bit about human flourishing. But I think you exist in sort of complementary, but also distinct, you know, academic tradition. So, you know, when it comes to well-being, I don't want to to mix, you know, terms here. Happiness, human flourishing. How do you like to think about it and conceptualize it and, and maybe kind of tease apart terms?
2: I'm going to give you an answer that might feel a little dissatisfying to you. We'll find out. I sometimes don't like to distinguish between terms. And I know that that's not very in vogue. I know as a researcher, I'm oh, like rationalized terms and have a very distinct definition and be able to delineate, well, this is how happiness is different than thriving, is different than flourishing. In some sense, I think to the person on the street, it doesn't matter. Because what we do in rigorous scientific psychology is we just look out at the real world And we see a phenomenon. And in this case, we see sometimes people are doing well, you know, and for a long time, we just called that they seem happy. And then in the modern era, we started saying, oh, well, they're flourishing or happiness sounds a little superficial. So actually what they're doing is thriving or let's call it well-being because that's something that we can put into workplaces. And it seems to have a little bit of gravitas to it. But I kind of think more or less, we're all kind of talking about a big thumbs up of quality of life. So in some sense, I'm I'm just happy with that. I don't think that leads to good research. I think you definitely have to get into the fine print in research. But when I just think about it in everyday life, I'm pretty okay with just thinking in really global terms. And now I just kind of dropped a bomb first thing. So I'm curious what you think of that.
0: Well, so we want to dig into your global research, and I'm sure that maybe has informed this view. But you mentioned quality of life as perhaps being a a rubric that is maybe satisfactory to cover all of them. So, is that the general term you use to cover well being, happiness, flourishing, anything else?
2: I kind of use the terms interchangeably, except for when I'm writing academically. So, you know, if I met you over dinner, I might say I'm a happiness researcher, or I study quality of life, or I'm interested in well being. And I'm more or less using those interchangeably.
0: Okay. So, quality of life, being happiness, flourishing, those are all roughly interchangeable.
2: To me, but not necessarily in research. In yeah, research, sure. when you appreciate a specific measure, I think you do have to show how they're different or unique.
1: 100% totally appreciated. And I'll just say, I agree. And I think what you said really resonates in my experience with clients, partners, collaborators, whatever it might be. You know, Nick, I don't really need to know or nor do I necessarily care what to call it just help me understand how to like know it or experience it in some way, shape or form. And so quality of life is like, yeah, that's it. To me, that kind of hits the nail on the head in many ways. But then what I will do then is follow up and say, okay, but if we go to the academic research lens, what would you say are the things that most consistently, and I understand we will probably want to tease apart maybe Western versus global versus regional, and we can get into that. But if you started in the most general sense, what do you think are kind of the key ingredients for
2: quality of life? You're asking me that? hmm <laughs> <laughs> I love what we're doing because we are going from big now a little more specific. So I've really been taken by sort of three disparate strands of research in what I'll call happiness. One is just looking at happiness as sort of enjoyment, so-called hedonic happiness. And I think that's important. And I think for a lot of people there's a rush to dismiss it as if it's superficial and we should all be dripping with meaning and purpose, which is also good. But I don't want meaning and purpose to entirely take the place of having fun at a barbecue or taking a bubble bath or having sex or some of the enjoyable things that also kind of make life worth living. So there's that hedonic aspect coming, you know, from the same root as hedonism. And interestingly, it's not just enjoyment, But it's also feeling safe. So when you experience safety and security, that's a hedonic feeling. So I don't think we should be dismissing that aspect of happiness. And then I think there's that meaning component, which I think is equally as important, but no more important. And I think that that has to do with, do I matter? Do I have an understandable story I can make sense of the world with? And then I think more recently, people have started looking at what they call psychological richness. And that is the idea of novel experience that promotes a change in perspective or or personal growth. And it might not feel good and it might not be meaningful, but it's definitely kind of the spice of life kind of stuff. And I think that every individual is gonna place a different weight on each one of those. Some people are gonna want a healthier dollop of hedonism with a little bit of sprinkle of meaning. Some people are going to want a lot of meaning with a little bit of novelty and richness. But I think that a really robust and full life is going to look like it has some elements of all three of those. Okay,
0: cool. So I want to now connect this with what you said about global work. So I want to see how this all that has informed your work because I love this nickname you have, Robert, the Indiana Jones. <laughs> <laughs> Your research has taken you to many countries, including Greenland, India, Kenya, and Israel, and you've looked at cross cultural issues. And you're very sensitive to the ways that the findings of Western centric science may or may not apply to non Western groups. So how have your global studies informed this view? And, and what have you learned about happiness, well being, quality of life flourishing, whatever you want to call it, or maybe that, you know, those terms being interchangeable? What have you learned from these, you know, disparate countries about these areas?
2: Well, I've learned a lot. (laughs) One of the things I've learned is not to romanticize any particular culture, which I know people can do about any given culture. So, oh, you know, look at people in X nation. They have such great relationships and their communities are so strong. And that is a great thing to learn from. But then, you know, you look at another society and say, well, people here have tons of personal freedom and it leads to loads of creativity, for example. And that's also pretty interesting. So I don't think, you know, one society in the world is correct and the others aren't. But I definitely understand that where you grow up culturally influences heavily what you're looking at when you're doing the calculus of happiness for yourself. So as an American, you know, we are taught that the individual freedom, the opportunity to pursue my own personal path, to bring my own unique talents, to make my contribution, that that's part of our societal fabric. And what that leads to is a lot of people feeling like they have a lot of freedoms and fettered by a lot of obligation. But we should also realize that a lot of the world puts pretty heavy premium on duty and obligation. And that people can feel an extraordinary amount of both enjoyment and meaning in fulfilling their role and fulfilling their obligation. And that is an alternative route to happiness, even though it feels quite foreign to my ears.
1: I'd be curious to get sort of your just kind of initial reaction to something one of our early guests shared with us, David Johnson from Oxford. We asked a similar sort of question and his sort of estimation, you could divide up into sort of four quadrants. So picture X and Y axis. And on the X axis, you have, you know, is is someone's source of well-being or happiness individualist or communitarian? And on the Y axis, you might have pleasure, hedonism, right, versus maybe meaning, right? And that a lot of cultures around the world would would maybe not perfectly, but kind of neatly fall into these quadrants. And it resonated a bit. I've mentioned this on one or two episodes, but I married into a Vietnamese family but born and raised in West Michigan, I can see those differences very, very clearly. At least I think, right? But you know, what's kind of your initial reaction to that notion of those four quadrants? Does that jive with kind of what you've seen and learned?
2: I definitely think that that individualism to communitarianism is a stronger axis than the hedonic meaning or eudaimonic axis is. So we definitely understand that people differ on this x-axis in terms of how they relate to others. How much am I indexing my own identity as part of my family, part of my community, part of my work group, versus just seeing me as this collection of personality traits and my own person? And we, we have pretty clear evidence for that around the world. I think there's less clear evidence that societies differ in terms of hedonism and meaning. Mm. Mm. My my take on hedonism and meaning is that they're clockworks. They're like gears turning together and that everyone has the capacity to experience meaning and experience some pleasure and that we do best when we experience both. And I would never want my children to say, I experienced so much meaning and I have no pleasure in life. And that would sound like a pretty awful life to me nor would I want them to say, every day is so enjoyable, but I'm just adrift in enjoyment with no meaning whatsoever. So I think some of the research suggests that surprisingly, people experience a lot of enjoyment in daily life. And that when you put people in a good mood artificially in the laboratory, they automatically start searching for meaning. I view those things as going together.
0: Right. So when you say that most nations you've looked at in the research globally, there's meaning and pleasure. Is is the claim that most people to to find fulfillment, to experience well-being, flourishing happiness, whichever term I want to use, need a sufficient degree of both rather than leaning one way or the other. Is is that that's the claim?
2: Yeah. I might even say something perhaps that might sound even starker, which is I don't think people pursue one or the other. I think that's like an artificial and academic distinction. But if you turn to the person on the bus or the train or the plane next to you, and you just ask them about it, I don't think you're ever going to find someone that says, I really just focus on one. I think dig even for two minutes and they're going to say, I enjoy watching the game. I went to my kids play. I felt proud. I jam out to some music while I'm stuck in traffic. Like There's a bunch of little pleasant moments in my life. And I would prefer to gravitate towards things that feel like they matter, that feel like they're aligned with my identity, that are consonant with my values. So I think people of all cultural backgrounds, all socioeconomic backgrounds have a natural propensity for both.
0: Right. So the thing that would vary would be more the sources of those across cultures, and nations, the sources would vary massively, I take it, right? But yeah, no. absolutely. Yeah.
1: To me, this, it seems there would be implications on a term you brought up earlier, which is that psychological richness. My like kind of quick hypothesis would be that like cultures that maybe are a little bit more communitarian centered. And again, maybe not, maybe meaning isn't a crux point, but let's just say communitarian and meaningful might be a little more willing to engage in that richness a little bit more to use one of your terms, you know, from the upside of your dark side, like distress tolerance so to speak, right, in service of the greater good. I'm wondering if that's something you've seen.
2: That's really interesting. So we know that it happens across cultures because one of the, I love this type of study, which is, you know, you're not just working with college students, but you're actually going out in the world and looking at a phenomenon. So my colleague Shigeo looked at obituaries. And he looked at obituaries first in the New York Times. And he was just kind of looking for a rich life, you know, someone who started off as a journalist, and then ended up getting conscripted and fought in World War Two, and then ended up becoming a therapist, and then ended up, you know, having two marriages later in life. And nothing about that says that it was particularly pleasant, right? Getting divorced, fighting in a war, And yet you would say, that person had a pretty full life, right? You can imagine they probably had some shifts in perspective, gained some wisdom along the way, experienced just a lot. One thing Shige asked, though, is, okay, so we see this in the New York Times, but maybe that's just people who end up in the New York Times obituaries. They happen to have particularly full lives. So he looked in the Singapore newspaper, the Straight Times. He looked in a little paper in Virginia. He went and asked people in South Korea, and he sort of found this same phenomenon in all of these different societies, which is people do experience psychological richness, but they tend to prioritize it far less heavily than they do having meaning in life or happiness or enjoyment in life. And that that sort of makes intuitive sense to me because it just seems so burdensome to have a rich life compared to just having a pleasant afternoon i think what's your own instinct about that well can
0: first just clarify for listeners what exactly psychological richness is so is it living a life rich in various types of experience dimensions of experience there's not some big chunk of experience that's missing from your life maybe you don't have everything but you've got good relationships, you're fulfilled in your work, you've got reasonably good work-life balance, you've done a lot of things with your life and so on. Is this the idea?
2: It's a great question, John. So I would think of that as sort of maybe more balanced life, like across the different areas of your life, you're experiencing wins. And I think psychological richness differs a little bit from that in that they're saying, across your whole life, have you just experienced a lot of novel stuff? regardless of whether it's professional or personal, you know, you would say someone who was healthy their entire life had a less psychologically rich life than someone who had a below the knee amputation early in life, and then later had cancer, but survived, you know, the treatment. And you wouldn't say that was a particularly pleasant life. It doesn't need to even be a meaningful life, but you'd say they experienced more in terms of their health And so, like, study abroad, I think, is one that's used as an example. Study abroad might not be meaningful. Some elements are certainly not pleasant. But it's the sort of change of perspective, rich, novel experience for at least a portion of your life, for those who are able to do that.
0: Yeah, I see. And they have to be experiences for it to be psychologically rich that give you a new psychological perspective on something. So if someone breaks their leg, but they kind of just shrug it off, it doesn't really affect them much psychologically maybe that wouldn't contribute that much to that's society. right
2: so i think that's a great instinct that it has to rise to some certain threshold like you know going off to war definitely rises to that threshold if i say i read a 100 different books i mean that's nice as a reading habit but it might not have profoundly shifted my perspective in some way
1: Mm-hmm. okay it brings me back to my earlier question a little bit, because as you were describing, and you two were going back and forth on that term, what I kept thinking about was some different kind of ideas. I've, I've tried to been tied together. And early on in the show, we had Anna Lemke. I don't know if you're familiar with Dopamine Nation or any of her research, Robert. Okay. So I walked away from that and the upside of your dark side saying there is utility and unpleasantness we need to toggle, we need to seesaw, we need to oscillate, right? And at the same time, what I heard you describe was not necessarily flipping a switch back and forth between pleasant and unpleasant. It seemed more dynamic than that, but I'm struggling to like put a word on it, if that makes sense. It's more complex. It's less linear.
2: Well, interesting. I mean, if you just take emotion, an emotional experience, We in the self-help world often want to treat emotion as if it is something that we should engineer and what we should engineer is sort of very pleasant emotions for ourselves. But before the modern era, I think people would have thought of emotions as reactions to daily life events and sort of a radar tracking system for your day. You know, I'm kind of getting an an uneasy feeling about this, or I feel very relaxed around this person, or I feel on guard or fearful around this person. And that's giving me some really important information. And so in part, you would be experiencing emotional highs and lows and shifts in a dynamic way as the events of your daily life shifted. Now we're in modern times, and a lot of the events of our lives are sort of, here we are in offices, I'm checking my email, having a conversation, and I'm not experiencing huge bursts of fear or panic or shame or rage. Mostly, I'm just kind of coasting along. And in that mildly pleasant state, we do have more opportunity to kind of engineer Where I think we've taken it too far is the desire to engineer a positive only state.
1: Okay, that's where I wanted to go with you. Okay, so that's exactly what I'm getting at, because it seems to me that what I think I heard is like, people don't necessarily prioritize psychological richness, which is the power of a preponderance of pleasantness, and the utility of unpleasantness right to hammer home my alliteration right they don't necessarily prioritize that but i guess what i'm kind of asking is like should we should we be a little bit more strategic about the perspective shifts right and trying to create that psychological richness and if the answer is yes does that you know necessitate more distress tolerance because a lot of those perspective shifts are unpleasant right they're rocking our world to a certain degree
2: Absolutely. And it does. If you think that a psychologically rich life with loads of novel experiences is kind of cool, then you've know going in, as part of that, I'm going to feel distressed. Right. Just if I think going to Madagascar might be a life-changing experience, I know I'm going to get lost. I might lose a luggage. I might be in a storm. I might get in an argument with someone. I don't speak the language. You know, I mean, there's going to be a lot of pretty frustrating and overwhelming and intimidating, you know, kind of elements to my emotional experience of that trip. That's part of what's going to make it so wonderful to me. So I neither want to romanticize the so-called negative emotions, but nor do I want to dismiss them. I mean, that's the problem with the toxic positivity that we occasionally see in the modern era is the idea that only happiness has a place at the table. But grief to me is like the perfect example. If you lose a loved one, I hope you're all broken up about it. I think that you should feel a profound sense of loss. You should cry. You should grieve for a long time. You should be unsettled by that. And people who just say, oh, and I turned around the next day, I was fine seem like they're missing a really important part of the human experience
0: wow so i really want to dig into this a bit more this is fascinating and it connects with a bunch of other things we'd like to ask you about about things like emotional agility and optimal happiness but that's the latter is what i really want to ask about here first so i'm trying to think we haven't actually in any of our conversations yet in any of our episodes talked about this notion of psychological richness as something that contributes to flourishing emotions and so on but this exact term i think this this is the first time this is come up in an episode. And I'm trying to think how you, Robert, one of your areas of expertise is optimal happiness. And one question I have here is, what would be the optimally psychologically rich life? Maybe that's the wrong way of looking at it. I don't know. But let's just bear with me one moment. When we think about this, if it's defined as having these novel emotional experiences, is it one way you just have as many of them as deeply as possible? So I haven't yet experienced grief. I better make sure I do that in my life or I haven't really lived a full life. Or I haven't really ever experienced like ecstatic laughter. Let's say I really need to make sure I do that. You think you're missing out on something there, but maybe just some other odd emotions. Like, yeah, I never really felt ambivalent. I should try and hunt that emotion out. Is it that you're trying to, you know, to be as psychologically rich as possible? Presumably, you've got to have all these in various contexts as deeply as possible. That doesn't seem like the right way of looking at it as something to kind of have, though, right? So, yeah, how would you express it in terms of if you're trying to? give someone advice on how to live the optimally psychologically rich life, to live the highest level of quality of life, what might be the way to describe that?
2: That's a great question. And it would be intriguing to write this kind of like, accept your emotions self-help book, you know, like now go out this afternoon and try and get as frustrated as possible. You know, I recommend always driving behind the slowest person possible, but you should be in a huge rush when you do it. And like, oh, now I really get what frustration is. Interestingly, if you did a thing like that, you would be able to tolerate frustration better. The more you experience it rather than distract yourself from it or try and suppress it or numb it, the more you're just like, this is what frustration is, and I can handle it. I know that I can withstand frustration. And I think if you just naturally live long enough, you don't have to worry about going out and seeking frustration or ambivalence. It'll come to you just fine. And I think people. You know, once you reach a certain age, someone close to you has died. You have lost a pet. Maybe you have been in a vehicular accident, right? Some of these things that kind of shake you up. Maybe you have had an opportunity to travel. Maybe you have fallen in love, right? And I think those kind of are the things that we would think are rich. But the people who are more likely to actively seek those out are more robust against the distress that those events will entail.
1: Hi friends, Nick here with just a brief interlude to share with you an update on one of our newest partnerships with the Anti-Fragile Academy. Throughout John and I's conversations with many, if not most of our guests, one thing has been made really clear. In order for people to flourish, thrive, experience the good life, they need to develop the capacity to not only navigate and endure, but ideally grow from the bad, grow from unpleasant experiences. That's why we're thrilled to be partnering with our newest sponsor, the Anti-Fragile Academy, an organization that I co-founded with Dr. Adam Wright, Director of Mental Performance for the Washington Nationals. At the Anti-Fragile Academy, we work with adolescent athletes, executives, and educators to help them understand some of the science, not just of optimal performance, but of well-being and anti-fragility. The ability not only to endure and bounce back from unpleasantness, but to actually come back stronger, to grow from it. Between Adam and I, we've worked with Fortune 100 companies, Inc. 300 executives, Division One programs, and elite professional athletes and Olympians from all over the world. To find out more about how you can leverage anti-fragility training, check out our website at theantifragileacademy.com.
0: There is a waiting then towards seeking out the more negative emotions to build a psychological muscle here, as it were. Rather You're than practicing, as, yeah. So we're not seeking out. We probably can't help but seek out the positive emotions, right? <laughs> more towards that. We most people at least tend to be, but when we're trying to build psychological richness, it would be. Try to also hunt out, seek out deep frustration, really cultivate your patience, you know, sit with the sadness and so on.
2: I think sit with is a great way to put it rather than seek out, you know, like I'm not seeking out grief because that makes it sound like I want to off one of my loved ones. And, you know, I know how to get some bereavement, but really what you want to do is when these things happen, not avoid it. You know what I did something wrong today. I treated someone in a way that's not consonant with my values as a result. I feel guilty and rather than try and justify myself or say why they were wrong or externalize it or suppress it or just watch a movie or have a glass of wine or anything I can do, I'm just going to kind of sit with that guilt for a second and say, "You know what Guilt is the natural emotion that I would be feeling in these circumstances. It feels pretty icky and I think I can withstand it. I think it will pass. Maybe there's even something I could learn from it, listen to it. Like, what's the guilt telling me as if it's a channel of information? And then, you know, I'm sure in an hour from now, it's more likely than not going to be gone. And I'll be going about the business of happiness once again.
1: My friend and collaborator and partner, Dr. Adam Wright has been really good about, I think, educating me on some of the evolution between traditional cognitive behavioral sort of techniques and acceptance commitment. And that's what I keep hearing from you. And he keeps kind of trying to, you know, bop me upside the head with like, Got to find ways to help people just sort of accept and let this in. It's paradoxical, but often that's going to be better for them.
2: You know, it's interesting from an interventionist point of view, cognitive behavioral has really gone out of the therapy room and into popular culture, right? This idea that you have self-limiting beliefs or you're holding yourself back or you have a little gremlin in your head or, you know, all of these things. Just everyday people with no training in psychology have heard of these And for a long time, that's how psychotherapists approached things like depression is by challenging those thoughts. And I think it's really interesting because it endures because it's effective, but it's also not that pleasant, you know, to think my problem is me. Not only do I feel depressed, but also my broken thinking is part of the problem. If I could just fix everything about me that's not broken, then I'll feel good. And I really like the modern trend towards, no, what if you just accept it and tolerate it? And what if a lot of those thoughts you have aren't really even broken? When you say, like, I don't think I can do that, maybe that's caution, because maybe you can't do it. Or maybe it's just a cautionary note saying, I don't want to fail publicly, or I want to take my time, or I want to be smart about how I do this. And that was kind of missing in that kind of cognitive intervention era is let's just listen to it and accept a lot of those so-called negative thoughts because maybe maybe there's some wisdom in there.
0: Yeah. So how does the concept of psychological richness relate to emotional agility, Robert, which is the theme of your book with Todd Kashtan, one of our first guests, The Upside of Your Dark Side?
2: We never made an explicit link to psychological richness because richness is actually a very new area of research. I think it's exciting. That's why we've spent so much time on it. But emotional agility and psychological agility, I think, is equally as wonderful because it's the suggestion that you don't just need to be in one state. You don't just need to be extroverted. You don't just need to be happy. You don't just need to be kind that really you shift as context would you know merit or or determine. And we even find this with emotions, that people don't just want to be happy. Sometimes they want to be angry in situations where anger seems appropriate, or they want to feel guilty, and they're motivated to feel guilty when they view guilt as a very utilitarian experience for their current objectives and i think that's a much more dynamic way to look at it that we should be shifting to whatever the appropriate optimal desired state is it's much harder to write a self-help book called it depends than it is to just advocate you know a singular approach like you should just be grateful all the time yeah. and that's the secret. yeah
0: love that is that a forthcoming book title you think of doing that
2: <laughs> yeah absolutely <laughs> It's going to be 8,000 pages long. It's just a list.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Awesome. Right. Nick, I want to dig into optimal happiness, but is there anything you want to ask on emotional agility first? Because this is your forte in many ways.
1: Well, in some ways, I just love the way all these different terms are tied in together, right? Whether it's acceptance or flexibility or agility or tolerance or those sorts of things. But I think just to maybe kind of tie a bow on it and want to get an optimal happiness, we also want to talk a little bit about the new book, which we've enjoyed digging into. But it still kind of seems to me like there's an argument to be made for being thoughtful and maybe intentional about engaging in things or allowing things that don't necessarily feel good. And I know that's an oversimplification and we've dug into a lot of nuanced terms today, but I just think it's so important to keep hammering home because the title of our show, the message of our show, I think can oftentimes sound like just feel good all the time and feel pleasant all the time. And that's just not the message we're receiving from experts like yourself, nor that we really want to get across.
2: Yeah. I'll tell you the lesson I learned most from writing Upside of Your Dark Side. And when I tell this to people, It's one of their big takeaways. It wasn't about how I could live better or be more successful. It had to do with my own parenting because I was a parent of a teenager at the time that I was writing this book. And I think before I wrote a book kind of advocating for the more distressing aspects of psychology, if my child got frustrated or bored, I'd try and cheer him up or reassure them out of it. Like, oh, don't worry because, and then offer reasons not to worry. Or don't feel that way because we'll do some other thing later that will counteract that. And every time I would do something like that, and I think many people parent that way, you're essentially invalidating their experience. But I started writing this book and I changed my parenting approach entirely. And I would just say to my child, What you're experiencing is the absolutely most appropriate emotional reaction to this situation. Like, and I'm not rescuing you from it. Like, this is what you should, you should be feeling bored in this circumstance or disappointed or frustrated or irritated or whatever it is. And of course, win me any points as a father, right? I got a lot of, you know, my dad's a psychologist kind of, you know, comments, But what I think I did is positioned my child, it was like sending him to the emotional gym so that he actually had the opportunity to experience some frustration and irritation and so forth, rather than be divorced from it. And now as an adult, I think he's better positioned to tolerate those things. Yes, well said.
0: Cool. In this show, we come across all these new forms of fitness, the emotional gym. Emotional fitness. In a previous episode with Mark Schulz, talking about the Harvard study about they have a whole chapter in their book, The Good Life, on social fitness. That's something we to cultivate to live good lives. As Nick said, we do want to ask you about a new book. Maybe we should go there now. Actually, we can come back to optimal happiness.
1: It feels like a good transition at this point to get into like you know. There's obvious, I think tie-ins nicely between coaching and parenting as well, in some of the messages here.
0: Yeah, I'd love to go that route. Yes. Yeah, so Nick and I both coaches and with similar experiences in different spaces such as you know both worked in peak performance and flow coaching space nick works in anti-fragility coaching i work in flourishing coaching now and you of course robert are an expert of positive psychology coaching and your most recent book positive provocation is on 25 questions to elevate your coaching practice so could you tell us Give us a kind of overview of the key theme of the book, which is about the method of reflective practice in coaching with three techniques, provocation, experimentation, implementation. What made you want to write this? Why is this so important in coaching?
2: So I think coaching is wonderful. I don't think coaching is going to solve all the world's problems. I don't want to put too much into it, but I think it's great. And I think people should try out coaching if they haven't. I think it's a wonderful way to support yourself through growth, development, behavior change, making decisions. And one of the things I noticed, both as a coach and a coach trainer, is that coaches sort of rush to closure on these sort of like pithy little adages. And some of these will even sound familiar to your readers, something like, I don't believe in shoulds. And someone might say that when really they mean, I think maybe, John, you're putting too much pressure on yourself. You know, I don't believe in shoulds. I should do this. I should do that. But the truth is you should believe in shoulds. There's all sorts of obligations. If someone's hit by a car in front of you, please go render aid to them. I think you should do that. You shouldn't walk by as if nothing happened. So I just felt like we need to give more scrutiny to some of the adages that were coming up and guiding coaching. And there were loads of them. You should always use the client's language. You should always be curious. You should always be empathic. You should never ask the client why. And there's just you know dozens and dozens of these. And I thought, why don't we do for coaches what we do for clients, which is why don't we ask a big challenging question that's hard to answer without investment of where they end up. Let's just help give them the invitation to reflect on and explore this. So this is what I did with coaches. I said, why might you ask why? How much empathy is too much empathy? Who's the curiosity for, you or the client? What's the difference between those two types of curiosity? And in those challenges, I don't think I know the answer, but I think when coaches think through those things, they will end up being able to better articulate and answer and ultimately be better coaches who can serve their clients better.
0: Right. So those are examples of the 25 questions in the book that you've just given there. And the aim, so how do you define a provocative question? Then? So it's one that like, I mean, I can see one that provokes reflection, deep reflection, and is provocative in the sense that I immediately feel Quite a strong emotion when you ask a question like that. How much empathy is too much empathy? Well, oh, is there such a thing? You know. So is this the idea?
2: Yeah. So I did call it positive provocation, not just provocation, because if you just look up the dictionary definition, provocation has a pretty ugly definition. You know, it's to call out, to fight, to challenge, and make someone knowingly uncomfortable. I mean, it kind of makes you look like a jerk if that's what you're looking to do. But a positive provocation must be in the service of the person you're provoking. It must have some benefit in mind. So I think of it as you're giving a challenge that's novel. It's not something that they're already thinking, because then that would just be validating or reinforces. So there's an element of novelty. It must be kind of strongly reasoned. So if I just say, oh, I think depression is probably caused by elves living in your water that you're drinking. That's a really novel idea. You've probably never thought that. But it's not very well reasoned. It's too easy to dismiss. But if I give you a challenge that has a really strong rationale or some research behind it that runs a little counter to what you believe, now you've got to contend with it. But then those two parts of the provocation have to interact with the person you're provoking. And that is the person you're provoking has to be up for it. They have to want to engage with you. You're not here just to put your provocations on someone. You're here to say, I'm holding out something to you. And if you want to step forward and reflect on it and wrestle with it, feel free. And when you get all three of those together, that's where I think you get a lot of great learning and growth. Sounds
1: an awful lot like psychological richness yeah, (laughs) as a desired outcome. Yeah, hopefully. Right. Yeah. So that's intentional. I mean, that's kind of my question here is, you know, it doesn't seem like that would be coincidental, kind of given what we've outlined so far, but it's kind of a synced way to put at least part of the intentionality behind the book to provide questions and nudges that create psychological richness for one's clients.
2: It's a really astute comment, Nick. And I think it's, I've never actually really articulated this before, but we treat psychological richness in research as if it's an outcome right just like happiness like oh if i marry the right person or move to the right city or have the right job then i'll be in this place called happy or if i take that trip to madagascar or fight in a war then i'll have this life called rich but i think of it as a process psychological richness is a process a process of experiencing the distress and perspective shift that comes with highly novel periods of life and events and that is kind of the process I'm describing here that you have been provoked to reconsider what you think you know and that is that shift in perspective
1: so I really really love this goal and the way you've structured the book and the way you've outlined the book and I don't want to Going too into much about, you know, me and John, but we do share some coaching history. And I think we've been in positions in the past where we've had to kind of like push forward different federations or organizations' philosophy of coaching. And I've really struggled with it. I've really kind of felt like that's some bullshit and that's not necessarily the right way to do it. And it didn't take me much more than to look over the table of contents and getting into your book where it was like, yeah. That's the stuff that needs to be asked and kind of pushed back against. And now, kind of what I'm getting, you know, just talking to you live is it seems like you tell me if I'm wrong here, but if the goal is psychological richness, right, as an ongoing experience for the client and all the things that that leads to, do we care how you get there?
2: I mean, I think we care a little bit. You know, I don't believe that you know, all means to all ends are on the table, certainly want to do things that are ethical, responsible, relatively safe. Positive, right? You added positive to the title, yeah. But I do think that you get a more expanded toolbox when you're not just trying to limit yourself to, you know, a happy channel of, you know, proceeding that direction. I mean, that is one good way, and I, I would never want to discount that, but there are other avenues.
0: Awesome. Thank you, Robert. It's a great book. I've really enjoyed reading it so far. It's going to be extremely useful in my own coaching practice. And I'm sure it was already extremely useful for you, Nick, as well. Okay. So maybe now I can ask about optimal happiness. (laughs) The reason I want to ask about this in particular, so yeah, one of your research areas is optimal happiness. And the reason I want to ask about this is because one thing that the research that we keep finding in research on happiness, flourishing well-being is that optimal happiness would not be the most happiness you can possibly have in the sense that if you strive to maximize your happiness throughout your life, that's often a recipe for dissatisfaction. That, as it were, the good enough life, the person who pursues the satisficing life where there's a threshold and that's where they're satisfied rather than constantly trying to get better, the satisficer. Is the person who tends to have higher well-being than the maximizer. But that, of course, depends what we mean by optimal happiness. So my first question is, what have you learned, Robert, in your world global studies, what it means to experience optimal happiness?
2: Yeah, I mean, that's a great question and a profound question. And I, I actually want to just give an aside on questions because I think of researchers as questioners. And I think that many lay people think of researchers as answerers. But to me, when a researcher has, you know, decades in on a a program of research and comes up with a really radically new question, that's where you see the most excitement, right? So in happiness research for a long time, we asked what leads to happiness. But then we started asking, what does happiness lead to? If you're happy, are you engaged in more health behaviors? And that felt so exciting. And I think that optimal happiness is one of these exciting questions, that how much is too much kind of question. And so it turns out that you can have too much happiness in what we would call achievement-oriented domains. And that's just a clunky psychological way of saying places where you actually have to execute performance. So Are you a student at university and you want to get good grades? That's sort of an achievement oriented domain. Are you getting promotions and making money at work and performing well at work? That's an achievement oriented domain. How many friends you have and what you do at the park when you hang out with them, that's not achievement oriented. So when you look at achievement You want an optimal amount of happiness. And if you just think about happiness as distributed across a 10-point scale, 1 is no happiness, 10 is consummately perfectly fulfilled. The people who perform at about an 8 outperform those who are a 9 or a 10. So they make more money than the 9s and the 10s. If they're students, they get higher grade point averages, they're better at their homework, they're more conscientious, they attend class more, they get promoted at work more. Again, if you're an eight, not a nine or a 10. And I think this kind of makes sense if you think about Olympic athletes, for example. If you go and ask an Olympic athlete, how satisfied are you with your performance? You don't want to hear them say, I think I've just totally got, I've nailed it. I have no opportunity for growth. I don't think I could get any better. I am just the top of the top of the top. I'm so satisfied with everything about myself. You know, they're not going to perform as well as that person that's got that little bit of hunger in them. So we're not saying that, that people do better when they're dissatisfied. We're saying when they're satisfied, but still have a little hunger for more. That seems to be the best part. And the caveat, of course, is in social domains, you know, how many friends you have, how much you're enjoying your life. Do you read books, watch Netflix, play sports, whatever it is, you can have as much happiness as you want. And it doesn't seem like, you know, if you are an eight, a nine, a 10, an 11, I think that would be fine in terms of your social happiness. I
0: have thought of a new good book book title as as you were talking then. Your no, book. now you got to lay it on us, John. I mean, your book title "It Depends." Then you've seen the film *Spinal Tap*, I assume, when they have the amps that go up to eleven. You know, like the front cover of this book with the amp that goes up to eleven—be like, "Happy enough?" Question mark. <laughs> yeah. <but> the <this laughs> motivational speaker, right? This book takes you to eleven.
2: That's right. You've read all the other books; they take you to ten. This is the <laughs> postscript.
0: So, sorry, it was an amazing point you just made, Robert. And I, yes, yeah, followed it with a joke. Nick, please follow it with something serious.
1: No, it's good. No, it's good. I just came back, like, maybe this is a good way to take us full circle as we get close to kind of wrapping the conversation here. But I knew right where you're going with the eights versus 10s, and they're just kind of light bulb. Well, maybe those eights, you know, have a little bit more distress tolerance, like they're a little more willing to be bored, they're a little more willing to put the workout in, they're a little bit more willing to, you know, execute discipline or self regulation, right? Or, take the leap of faith even though they're a little scared not in a dangerous way but in a way that creates more interesting or expanded outcomes right and those sorts of things and is that something that you see you think behaviorally between the eights and the nines or the tens
2: yeah certainly that's what the research which is you know it's small but growing pans out and anecdotally too when you meet people who you think wow you're really successful And they say, yeah, but, you know, like, I also like to pay attention to the places where I'm not as strong or where I could improve. But, yeah, I'm really satisfied with my career. I'm really satisfied with my strengths. And yet there's this little extra bit that seems like quite a a healthy attitude to me.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So both and. Well, we've got one more question for you. We love to take our very thoughtful, complex, nuanced researchers and experts and ask them a very oversimplified question, which we call the flourishing question. So amass all the different things you understand, know, have researched, right, coached, talked about. Where do you think like the juice is really worth the squeeze for our listeners when it comes to their ability to develop whatever you want to call it, flourishing, optimal happiness, psychological richness? Where would you suggest somebody try to get started or think they can gain a lot of leverage for quality of life?
2: I just taught on this earlier this morning. So I have kind of a non-traditional answer. You know, I'm not going to say, oh, I think you should invest in your health or your sleep or your relationship, something like that. I think you should take well-being seriously and give yourself permission to pursue it. Because I think that's actually the biggest obstacle for people. You know, again, if you turn to the person next to you on the bus, the plane or the train and you say, do you have any idea at all how you could be happy? They do. They're not going to be like, oh, I've never given it any thought. Like they have loads of ideas about how they can be happy and they make decisions every day that they think will make them a little bit happy. What they don't do is prioritize their happiness all the time. All these other things get in the way of it, or they just don't feel like they deserve it, or they don't give themselves permission to make the space, take the time. And I would say that's the infrastructure that you want in place. Then you can go and pursue whatever those things are, whether that's health, relationships, sleep, what have you.
1: That's a huge part of the coaching work I find often is the system and the structure and the habits and the behaviors and whatever, right? It's not necessarily identification or goal setting.
0: Absolutely, totally agree, and that seems to be a recurrent theme actually in some episodes like identifying the right things to prioritize in life if you want to build your well-being rather than focusing too much on the wrong things, you know, for example, focusing more on relationships, focusing more on ways to become more happy and less on. Working 15 hours a day or making as much money as possible, rather than allocating sufficient time to the other really important areas of life. Amazing. Robert, thank you so much. Where can people learn more about you, about your work, and your latest book?
2: Either of my websites, robertdiener.com. Hopefully, you'll put a link. That's my personal website for speaking, coaching my book or positiveacorn.com, which is my coach training.
1: In fact, tomorrow we have on Krista Stryker. Do you happen to know Krista? I saw today and doing my research for her. She's a Positive Acorn grad. I do know her. She's. You want to promote Positive Acorn real quick? Just tell people what it is.
2: We train people from all around the world. Not to be good coaches, but to be great coaches. We don't offer you anything quick or easy. We demand you put a lot of time in. We push you hard. We give you a lot of opportunities to practice, get feedback, maintain an ethical stance towards your clients, and really develop robust competencies with a positive psychology focus. Cool. Beautiful. Awesome.
0: Thank you so much, Robert. And your latest book is Positive Provocation, 25 questions to elevate your coaching practice.
1: We wish you luck on it. And yeah, really appreciate your time. This was a great conversation. We knew it would be. We appreciate you for bringing it and for making the time for us.
2: You too. I had fun. Thanks for having me. Yeah, you bet. Thank you.
1: Thanks so much for listening to Flourish FM. We hope you enjoyed the content. Please be sure to leave us a five-star review and hit that subscribe button wherever you listen to your podcast and on all major social media platforms.
0: And if you visit our website, flourishfmpodcast.com, you can sign up to our newsletter. We send out a weekly newsletter. First newsletter of every month, we share a long form blog and every newsletter, every week, we share highlights from our previous episodes. Please hit subscribe on our website.